Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're back with another listener mail episode. It's been so long since we've done a listener mail episode. That is our bad, not yours. But it does mean that there's going to be a lot of great listener mail we've gotten from y'all over the months since our last episode that isn't going to make it in. Please don't take that as an insult. But uh, we, we thought we'd pick some messages coming in in the past month or so from some recent episodes and, and read them back to you, share with you what you've shared with us. Right, and so we have to introduce once more our mailbot, Carney, who uh, has emerged once more from his uh, oubliette to uh, to share <laughs> the mail with us so that we may share it with you. That might explain why we've been told recently on Facebook that all of our episodes are very dark and about uh, what, what somebody commented. Evil. Oh, they're about evil one topics. Person, I think, uh, though, that it's because Carney's coming out of an oubliette. <laughs> I think that person who said everything we, we did was evil was confusing what we post on Facebook with our actual episodes. Mm-hmm. So what we post on Facebook is evil? No, I'm not sure of that either, but I think they were <laughs> saying, like, you keep posting stuff about torture and... Well, you know... Depends on... It's in the eye of the beholder, man. We cover a lot of a lot of ground, and uh, and in doing so, we, we touch on a lot of the, the darker aspects of, of reality and human nature, but we also cover a lot of uh, pretty fun and, uh, and off-kilter stuff, I think. But also, as yeah, we, we will... As, as yeah. we will discuss in this episode, many animals thrive in darkness. So I think we should get right into it. If you guys have no objection, let's do it. Okay, well, Carney is now spitting out an email that comes to us. Uh, we're actually going to get into a few about the Uncanny Valley episodes that Robert and I did. So, this first one is from our listener, Vicky. And Vicky says, Hey guys, love your show. Half the time that I listen, I've never heard of the topics, but they're always really interesting. Thank you, Vicky. Vicky says, I just finished the episodes on the Uncanny Valley, and that's, of course, where we talked about the, this concept in robotics and CGI uh, character animation, where the original understanding of it is as characters become more realistically human, as they look more and more like a real human, they be actually become more disturbing when they get close to the finish line. Uh, and so we discussed how that might actually be too simple, how the evidence for and against that existing, other ways of interpreting it, and we discussed what happens when you go beyond the Uncanny Valley, what happens when you can create CGI characters that are so good they're indistinguishable from real humans? Stepford Wives. Is that CGI characters or robots? They're robots. Okay, yeah. But there was an, there's certainly an uncanniness to them intended mm-hmm. uh, once they have been turned into robots. Totally. So anyway, Vicky says... I'm a Star Wars fan, but not obsessively. Ask me about Star Trek. I know tons about that. Oh, boy. Uh, I didn't know that Peter Cushing was deceased or that they used technology to recreate his character. Here she's referring to, of course, in Rogue One, the character of Grand Moff Tarkin, who is played by Peter Cushing, who is now deceased. They brought him back from the dead using the powers of CGI. Uh, now, but but Vicky says, I thought they did some anti-aging technology magic on him. Obviously, at the ending, I knew something was up. Uh, my question is about possible ethical issues in using this technology. Hollywood can make any actor perform in any movie. And if they're deceased, they could be putting these actors into movies they would not be a part of. For example, before 
before they had agreed to kill off Han Solo to persuade grumpy Harrison Ford to be in The Force Awakens, they could have used this technology to put him into 27 more Star Wars movies. And even if they couldn't get away with it while he was alive, who would stop them from doing it once he passed? As amazing as this technology is, I think it has kind of bizarre and questionable implications. What are your thoughts? Again, love the show. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you very much, Vicky. And this is a big question. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's in fact not just theoretical about the future. I mean, th- there have already been uses of actors after they died apart from Peter Cushing. I think that wasn't there some commercial a while back that used Fred Astaire or something yeah. like that? Yeah. Yep. And, it, yeah, I, I do think this is a big question. Now, on one hand, you could say, well, once you're a public figure, once you're in the public domain, people are going to be calling upon your likeness without your consent all the time. For example, fan fiction can be written about you personally or about characters you played, and you have no control of that whatsoever. Right, and then there's, of course, the the, the right of parody yeah. as well. But, but, but then when you get down to, say, a character like Elvis Presley, yeah. it's one thing to have parody uh, related to, to representations of Elvis, but his estate is so locked down, you're you're only going to see if there's CGI Elvises around, like official CGI Elvises. You can you can be pretty sure those are going to be uh, you know officially authorized by the estate. <laughs> it's just that not everybody's estate uh, is as buckled down or will be as buckled down as the Presley estate. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say I I don't know if you guys covered this in the episode or not, but I'm pretty sure Peter Cushing's estate gave the legal go ahead for that to be done. Right? Yeah, they did. So. So, I mean, what we're asking here really is a question of, like, actor contracts mm-hmm. or, or really any public figure contracts. We we should really look at our contracts, guys, Well, whether or not people can bring us back from the dead. No, I mean, I think the question is, like, should this be, uh, like, what are, what are your rights to your likeness if it is something that you have, it's not like footage that you shot being there in person, but somebody completely recreating your likeness from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Uh, should you be able to, I mean, how much rights do you have over somebody drawing a picture of you and is a CGI simulation of you that's indistinguishable from real just an advanced version of somebody drawing a picture of you? One of the interesting things about this is that as we're considering this, we're we're saying, all right, your likeness will digitally uh, continue on after you were dead. Yeah. And you can have certain terms and, and legal uh, contracts that represent what your wills and wishes would be. In a sense, you're beginning to create a program for your identity. You're beginning to create um, a digital version of your will to live on with the digital version of your appearance. And so we're kind of seeing like a form of digital immortality that emerges out of the the need and the, uh, like the commercial uh, um, application of your likeness and the desire to control it after death. That's interesting. Yeah. So like you're saying if there are high quality digital simulations of people who have died, you could maybe have a situation where you you write a will that says, I would agree to having high quality digital simulations of me do X, Y and Z, but they can't do A, B and C. Yeah. So you'd almost be you'd be like creating an idealized version of you that lives on. That's sort of what you're saying. Yeah. Kind of a, almost like a, a limited ghost of yourself, but it's a ghost that's not concerned with with haunting individuals, but rather just one that's interested in just tending to your reputation after right. death. I will only be featured in baked beans commercials after my <laughs> death. Okay, well, interesting thoughts. Thanks, Vicky. Uh, should we look at another one from the Uncanny Valley episode? I know we got some correspondence from our frequent listener uh, Peter, right? 
Oh yeah, Peter Cron of uh, or PK of King Deluxe Records. Uh, he is a, a longtime friend of the show and writes in quite a bit. Uh, and he wrote in and shared uh, qu- quite a bit on the Uncanny Valley because he's, among other things, he's involved in uh, in virtual reality interests and in the the creation of a, a virtual reality space station. My understanding is it's going to be like a, 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 a space for art and performance in the digital realm. It's not going to be like that ship in Event Horizon. I don't know. It might be. What is that but performance art? Uh, we'll actually get into uh, an example of that in a bit. Uh, but uh, Peter wrote in and said, Great episodes on the Uncanny Valley. It's one of my biggest interests, as trying to help create characters and avatars in virtual reality involves a lot of playing around with these ideas. And for me, it's a very real thing, not just with humans, but I feel like there is an effect like this when you get close to anything. This sort of mismatch, as you guys mentioned. So he's saying there's an Uncanny Valley not just for human faces, but for likeness toward reality in any domain. Yes. He says, although the effect is stronger with humans because we're so intimately familiar with faces, uh, but also, as mentioned, you can get used to it, kind of. Although being in th- a 3D space in VR with an avatar feels different to the brain than seeing it from the outside, which was also brought up, I believe. I think you said being there in person, and that's what it feels like in VR. You have a more emotional connection with a character, and uh, that can override some of the uncanniness. I believe because your resources are focused on their emotional state, however, it can also exaggerate the awkwardness I found. So that's sort of mitigating against... There was one author we talked about who wrote an article saying, you know, I looked at some humanoid robots on video and thought that they were really creepy. I had this uncanny valley effect but then when i went and saw those robots in person they didn't bother me and other people attest that you can get used to things that cause the uncanny valley effect at first Uh, but it sounds like peter's sort of weighing in on both sides of that yes i believe so Marvel movies are an example of the Uncanny Valley in another way, I think. I don't find the newest Hulk creepy per se, but it looks worse than some older Hulks, more CGI, despite the amount of work and technology that I'm sure went into it. As it gets closer to imitating muscle movements and facial expressions, it looks worse and worse, although I'm positive we'll get over this hump, at which point we'll have to worry about stuff like uh, like you discussed in the episode, applying expression to video, not just to make faulty evidence, but things like playing... Uh, for witnesses, uh, reenactments that rewrite their brains, whether they like it or not, implanting new memories. That's really interesting. Uh, so I sort of agree with Peter about how, in a lot of cases, the as CGI gets better, it somehow does sort of look worse. Uh, Not just in the Uncanny Valley sense, but also in the sense of, like, adding more details to things makes it look more unreal somehow. You remember the Transformers movies when, like, the Transformers would be transforming and they'd have all these moving parts. They'd say, oh, okay, let's have eight million moving screws and widgets and stuff on Optimus Prime as he transforms through this freeway battle scene. And it just looks so busy. It looks unreal. It looks crappy. Yeah, like a, we meant to go back to Tarkin. Uh, when I finally watched Rogue One, which was just a couple of weeks ago, it didn't really bother me as much, perhaps because I was prepared for it. But there were a few moments where if I had to, to say what bothered me about it, I'd say it was it was like he was over-articulated, like he was a yeah. puppet, mm-hmm. and the puppeteer was just going all in. I would say tar- the CGI Tarkin in Rogue One had too many pores for me. <laughs> like, they were trying to give his face real human texture by giving him all these pores and crags and stuff, and I know that's hard to do, so again, we're not knocking the work done by these animators. It's very difficult, but he had so much 
texture on his face. It was too much texture. Well, also, seeing, when you think about Peter Cushing, right, like the movies that he was well known for were not shot in high definition. Right. So we think of our memory of Peter Cushing is sort of hmm. blurrier than Rogue One's memory of him, right? Like, like it was like being up close and personal with him if you're seeing all these pores and facial crags and stuff like that. So like, like trying to imagine an HD Peter Cushing is like trying to imagine a, a color Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Christian, you got an email? Yeah, we did uh, an episode on the Doomsday Clock a couple weeks ago. Uh, for those of you not familiar, this is the clock that calculates humanity's countdown to annihilation. Uh, it is calculated by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and we took a look at it and tried to figure out what uh, all goes into that that brings us closer to the theoretical midnight on the clock. And in the episode, I brought up that I had just recently seen a T-shirt that somebody was wearing on an airplane. It was a lotus flower with two machine guns in it, and on it it said, Peace Through Superior Firepower. And what I, when I looked it up, it said it had come from aliens, and I wasn't aware of that. So our, a listener, Rich, wrote into us about this, actually. We had multiple people wrote into us about it, but Rich has uh, really hit something on the head here. Apparently, it is a phrase that comes uh, through the American military from well before aliens. He says, I just finished the Doomsday Clock episode. It's another great podcast. I've got three comments. First, peace through superior firepower is older than aliens. I was in the U.S. Air Force in 1979, and that phrase was the unofficial slogan of the Strategic Air Command, or SAC. I assumed because they controlled a lot of the nukes and conventional bombs. I've seen unofficial U.S. Air Force SAC patches with that slogan. I don't know how old the phrase is, but Teddy Roosevelt's speak softly but carry a big stick was similar. So we, I was kind of wondering like where this had come from, uh, and it seemed at the time that it was something that was was written for the movie. It was on one of the characters' uh, uniforms, but mm-hmm. uh, clearly it has origins in the real world. Then he addresses the actual doomsday clock, and he says, The fear of nuclear annihilation, regarding that, I was born in 1960, and I think I saw fallout shelter signs in my elementary school. However, we never had drills of hiding under our wooden desks like our older siblings. I heard heard those stories, and while I was concerned with nuclear annihilation a bit in the 70s and 80s, I always assumed the 50s were worse, so I didn't worry about it too much throughout my life. This is something Robert and I talked about in the episode, us being children of the 80s. The sort of specter of the Cold War was always hanging over us as little kids, but uh, it sounds like what Rich is proposing is that maybe it was worse in the 50s, and I can imagine, too, if that's, you know, you're a decade after the war... There's probably a lot of scares in the air about potential warfare. Oh, well, sure, yeah. And then his third comment is about climate change, which, so one of the things we learned in that episode was that they uh, calculate climate change as a part of moving the doomsday clock, even though originally it was mainly based on uh, nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. So he says climate change should be included in the doomsday clock, along with any other probability of ending the world. And then he ends it with saying, Asteroids? Question mark. Maybe we should take a look more. Into Does Rich know something we don't? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I think what he means is the the apocalypse that comes when we all get locked into playing asteroids so much that we stop eating and breeding. Yeah. Well, I I really want to thank him for clarifying the thing about the peace through superior firepower because I had no idea what that was, and when I saw it. 
you know, I think it was probably maybe a month after the election, and I was just like, oof, this is this kind of freaked me out a little bit. But, you know, apparently that's just my sensitivity. This is something that goes back a good 40 years. Well, I interpreted his point uh, about asteroids being, of course, the, the risk of near-Earth objects uh, hitting the Earth, yeah. which is something I've been... I, I always think about this at pretty much any time I look up into the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since my son is he's about five now and he's super into dinosaurs, so he's he's he'll often ask not only about dinosaurs but about uh, the risk of uh, meteors and meteorites and comets and asteroids. And he'll ask uh, you know, why this happened and will it happen again? And the, the the answers that you have to give are not always that reassuring. It's kind of like well, you know, for the most part we tr- we keep track of it. The you know we, we have uh, we have organizations that watch the skies and. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he says, well, what if one's uh, going to hit the Earth? Well, so, well, we have a few different plans <laughs> in place that might do the trick if we catch it early enough. Uh, but it's not quite it's not quite as reassuring an answer as I would like to give. No, Just sit the- him down for a double feature of dim- Deep Impact and uh, Armageddon. That'll <laughs> solve everything. Oh, man. Which of those movies is worse? That's a good question. <sighs> That, that's an episode for another day. Well, no, I mean, what you should, I think the way you should frame it to your child is, well, statistically, on a time scale of X number of years, we know that it will happen again. Yeah. No, I mean, th- that's the thing. That There's takes gonna... the uncertainty out of it. <laughs> Just, you know, it's some, it's a dice roll. Sometime in the next 100,000 years, there's going to be a large impact. Yeah, it's going to happen. Will we be prepared for it? Will we have... <laughs> the, uh, the the collective will the the, uh, the the collective effort in place to deal with it and uh, you know there are times where I think yeah we're, we're totally we're getting there we'll, we'll totally be there and then other times where I think no it's gonna it's gonna lose its importance to people uh, people are gonna stop watching the skies they're gonna be busy um, you know staring into each other's hearts like we always do we're gonna be arguing about stuff on Twitter when it's looming well mm-hmm. here's my cynical worldview we can't even get the roads to work right here in Atlanta how are we gonna <laughs> take care of any uh, falling objects from the sky huh? the highways collapsed twice in the last three weeks. Well, I think one of them was technically a buckling, oh, which is okay. even better. Yeah. We're really taking care of our infrastructure. Okay, you guys ready for another one? Let's do it. Here we got some feedback on our Chinese immortality episode. Robert and I did this. Uh, we, we were discussing various Chinese mythical figures, including one who attained this state of immortality or near immortality, but lived in an altered state, which I- entailed a diet of only air and dew and an apparent loss of some male sex characteristics. Now, in the episode, I used this as a springboard to talk about some of the studies that have suggested a connection between between longevity, first of all, between uh, longevity and caloric restriction in animals, and second, between longevity and castration in men. And our listener Pat wrote in with a response about the alleged benefits of castration. So Pat says, Dear Robert and Joe, first of all, love your work and everything you guys do. Your podcast has been a staple of mine for quite some time, and I appreciate all the research and critical analysis that goes into every episode. Please read this email from a constructive view rather than as a critique of the wonderful work you guys do on the podcast and subsequent publications. Well, you're, you're too kind, Pat, before you, you set us up to swat us down. I know. You, you, now I'm instantly flinching because I know he's going to come at us. <laughs> okay. So... 
Two notes regarding the recent podcast on Chinese immortality, elixirs, and enlightened beings, both stemming from my research regarding male hypogonadism induced by androgen deprivation therapy for prostate cancer treatment, of which I'd be happy to discuss further if interested. Um, although the two studies you discussed, and those were Hamilton... Hamilton and Gordon and Min et al. Uh, purported that castration of men increased life expectancy. Both are quite questionable in terms of methodology. Hamilton and Gordon's paper is in a population that in no way can be compared to the broader population sample. That population, by the way, in Hamilton and in Gordon's paper was institutionalized men. Uh, and then second, Pat says, Min et al. study relies on a methodological process I cannot believe past peer review in a scientific journal. And by this, uh, he's referring to relying on historical records of eunuchs' life expectancy from the 1700s. Mm. Uh, so Pat continues, it's undoubted, uh, undoubtedly confounded by the time period in which the data was observed. Whilst fascinating, neither provide what I would consider robust evidence that this phenomenon is presented in men. In fact, evidence suggests the opposite, in that hypogonadal men are at greater risk of mortality. For further reading, see the following, and Pat lists several papers that seem to show an association between increased mortality and, uh, and loss of male sex characteristics. Pat continues, I appreciate there's a large amount of heterogeneity amongst trials, however, claiming that men can benefit from cast or being, quote, less manly is oversimplified, in my opinion, not in line with current re- current scientific knowledge. Uh, and I would I would say, well, I would certainly agree with Pat on that. While the studies we cited are real, I hope it came through that the, the thread connecting them to the topic of the episode was primarily a humorous one. You guys uh, aren't advocating for people to go out and become units. No, I was not advocating castration as a proven life extension technique. However... Although Varys is your favorite character on... On Game of Thrones, right? Oh, Varys is a good character, <laughs> yeah, actually. Like he's too. he's surprising. I like him. Yeah, yeah I think if anything, we were uh, promoting uh, uh, Taoist alchemy as, yeah. uh, as a lifestyle <laughs> choice. It's true. Yeah, the the elixirs are where it's really at. The castration is uh, that that's only a side product. Uh, however, I do want to say, uh, despite that, I really do appreciate Pat's note about the potential methodological flaws in the two studies I did mention in the episode. I. I I'd take both of those points pretty strongly. I, th- I think those are good things to consider. Uh, and also for pointing out the studies that are going in the other direction, saying there might be a connection between uh, hypogonadism and uh, connection to mortality. So to reinforce, no matter how much you think you want more life, if you are male, self-castration is not a scientifically proven way to get it. Remind me again, what are the name of crab gonads? Uh, gonopods. Gonopods. <laughs> gonopods. Okay. That's the, the crab equivalent of a penis. Mm, yeah. Uh, but back to Pat's email. This, this is a, something we've discussed off air a lot. Uh, back gonopods to, or Pat's email? <laughs> no. Uh, gonopods. It came up in a trailer talk, as I recall. It did, I think yeah. so. Uh, back to Pat's email. Another point, a very minor one, uh, but you noted that one study, I think it was the second one in which you discussed monkeys and caloric restriction, observed a, quote, very slight increase, albeit not statistically significant. Although you don't overly run with this finding, it would generally be stated as finding no difference rather than a very slight non-significant increase. This one might be me being a little picky, but I know I've been pulled up on this one by supervisors and peer review in the past, so I ensure I only mention direction when statistics are there to support. And, and Pat's right about this. I mean, generally in science, if you see an increase but it doesn't meet the statistical threshold, mm-hmm. it means, you know, this is possibly within the margin of error. So you you shouldn't really cite that as a meaningful increase. And I don't think we did 
try to cite it as a meaningful increase. I, it just, you know, it, it's, but, but what Pat's saying is if the increase is not statistically significant, it's not even worth mentioning that there was an increase, which you can make that argument. Finally, Pat mentions a book we might be interested in known as The Emperor of All Maladies by Siddhartha Mukherjee. And I took a look at this. It does look very interesting, so I want to check it out. But it's it's about cancer. Uh, and Pat suggests potentially doing an episode on cancer treatments in the future. Uh, wonders if his email will end up on a future Mailbot episode. Well, here, here you we go. Are. I would recommend going back and listening to our second episode about uh, MDMA. We talk a yeah, lot we about get into that, a little bit, that yeah. as being a cancer treatment possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Finally, on another follow-up email, Pat says that he enjoyed our episode about radiation, life after radiation, oh, yes. including the stuff about the fungus that might be an eater of rads. Oh, yeah, the Eater of Rads episode. This is the one where we talked a little bit about Godzilla mm-hmm. uh, and then a lot about uh, Chernobyl. Right. Uh, <laughs> like, it was one of these where we, we, we went in thinking that Godzilla would be more of the hook, but the episode was far more serious, uh, so we ended up backing off from the a lot of the Godzilla uh, branding on that one. I think we ended up talking a decent amount about Godzilla in the uh, Facebook Live we did for That's that right. episode, yeah. didn't we? Did you guys say, let them fight? <laughs> no, we did not. It's a missed opportunity. Which one is that from? That's from the latest Godzilla movie, the latest American Godzilla movie, yeah. Ken Watanabe. Oh, yes. Nice. All right. Well, you know, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we have some more listener mail related to episodes uh, that we've covered in the past, uh, some in the distant past. All right. We're back. So uh, I wanted to share an email here. This one's an interesting one because it's uh, someone who uh, has, has listened to a lot of the, the back catalog as well. And uh, her name is uh, Ainsley. She wrote in on Facebook. And she wrote in about the mixology episode that uh, Joe and I did together. Okay. Uh, and she had some tidbits about uh, cannabis-flavored vodka. What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> But she also referred to an older episode uh, that uh, that touched on suspension um, bondage, the idea of you know suspending oneself on hooks placed in the flesh, and uh, this was from from years back. But she said that uh, that in it we we kind of were doubtful. The hosts were kind of doubtful that you could have uh, just a single hook uh, in a person and, and serving as the suspension that you would need to have more than oh, one. Oh wow, yeah. But she says, oh no, you can you can. Suspend on just one. So really, yeah. So I at this point I was like, this is oh, some Jim Rose circus stuff over here. Yeah, I, indeed. I okay. And so at this point I, I realized, oh well, she's she has some experience in this. Maybe I'm going to ask her about it. Yeah. I, I would love to hear you know straight from someone who's engaged in suspension work. Uh, you know what it consists of, and she responded. So this is what she said. Yes, I've been a practitioner for a handful of years now and have been afforded a number of opportunities to perform publicly with some really fantastic people. I love performing. I love the shock factor and the energy. I love the confused looks of awe and disgust from the crowd. But when I took my first hooks, I was about 19, full of angst and rage. I wanted to feel something intense, anything at all. But what happened changed my life forever. Suspending for that first time was indescribable. It was like... Like I had relaxed my tense muscles for the first time in my life. Like I had overcome my mind and shrugged off the long-accustomed sticky sense of self-doubt. Really, I can't find the words. 
but I fell in love. I was allowed to feel and bleed and openly respect the process of each. It was a whole new world for me. Suspension became my life. Anyway, I'll send a few pictures of some of my favorite flesh suspensions and flesh pulls, and I'll point you in the direction of suspension.org. Hopefully, they're still running their e-zine, Hook Life. <laughs> uh, link should be at the bottom of the homepage. Hook Life features some beautifully written first-hand accounts and photographs. And she also recommends uh, a book titled Learning to Fly. Cool. That actually sounds like my experience with the sensory deprivation tank. Yeah. Because it was very similar to, like, the floating sensation. It, it, it They actually tell you this before you, you get in them, but, like, your muscles start to relax so much that you realize that there's, like, you're feeling muscles for the first time that you didn't really know were there. It's pretty fascinating. Whoa. I, I couldn't imagine th- that you would get the same experience from suspension, but that sounds really cool. Yeah, and I said uh, suspension bondage earlier. I, th- I think the, the more correct term is just hook suspension, but uh, okay. at any rate, or just suspension in general. Uh, so that was that was my misstep there. But I, I, I found this really interesting to hear from from her, and and she sent some pictures uh, showing her uh, engaging in suspension. And uh, yeah, it's, it's one of these things where you see pictures of it or footage, and uh, t- if, especially if it's on TV, it's really played up for the shock value, mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily have enough insight into how this person is interacting with the experience like what their role is is it you know how, how does pain factor into it is it pleasureful yeah. like what's going on here so i really appreciated her words and i thought she uh, expressed it rather nicely there i think for a lot of people it might be surprising that some people who do this seem to approach it from a kind of performance art point of view i mean to to be mm-hmm. blunt i think a lot of people would look at that and just consider they think it's some kind of sex act or something mm-hmm. well and also i think like probably in pop culture the the go-to for this is that movie the cell where like, oh yeah the guy who does it is like a serial killer so mm-hmm. i mean i think yeah most people just assume that it's got negative connotations or or just sexual connotations to it mm-hmm. but anyway yeah really interesting so it just goes to show again that we have we have such great fans out there, and and some of them are engaged in so many interesting areas, be it something ap- academic, or uh, you know performance oriented, or or something uh, experiential that is uh, you know beyond what what we generally have the the the, the scope to uh, relate to directly here. Hellraiser-ish in the best way. Yeah. Okay, so I wanted to look at a couple that came in about the episode Robert and I did about the London Underground Mosquito. So in that episode, one of the things I mentioned was that I was wanting to come across an animal that was a cave-dwelling albino bird. Wouldn't that be great? Like an albino vulture with red (laughs) eyes that lives exclusively underground. It would be terrifying. And Laura writes in about this. Laura says, Hi, guys. In the podcast on the London underground mosquitoes, you said in passing it would be cool if an underground adapted bird species arose, whilst not quite an albino. Man, a lot of our our listeners write in with whilst. Mm. Sorry, you have good grammar. Better grammar than I do. I think that just indicates uh, British listenership. Uh, But uh, whilst not quite an albino, red-eyed vulture, the oil bird is adapted to spending much of their lives in caves, hmm. the avian answer to the fruit bat. They do leave the cave at night to find and eat fruits, but spend the rest of the time in caves as large colonies. As an adaptation to their dark abode, they echolocate like bats, but in the audible range for humans, so their caves must be very loud. They also have good night vision and 
bristles on the face for navigation. Caves are rarely rich enough in small mammals, lizards, or carrion for carnivorous birds to specialize in this food source, only while still retaining wings. Flightless birds tend to live in rich forest floors or places where running helps. So it's unlikely that your dream of an albino vulture will ever become an evolutionary reality. Well, thank you, Laura, for writing this in because I looked up oil birds and these things are cool. They have Wilford Brimley mustaches. <laughs> like Cocoon Wilford Brimley or uh, Ewok movie Wilford Brimley? I've never seen Cocoon or the Ewok movie all ah. the way through. I'm in a, all the uh, way in a bad, bad place here. Where did you, where did you back out on, the, uh, on well, the Ewok movie? I think the only parts of the Ewok movies I've seen are the parts you, you made me watch for trailer <laughs> talk. So it was something about giant spiders. I don't know. Yeah, remember. I think the giant spiders are in the first one. Oh, the, yeah, the, Wilfred Brimley's in the second yeah, one. Yeah, and that's the one. It's got orcs in it, an yeah. evil witch, Ewoks, a an child. Ewok massacre. Yeah. Oh, no, that's horrible. That's how it begins. Horrible. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, Laura writes in about oil birds. You listening at home, look up an oil bird. This is a good thing to look up. They've got really funny mustaches and apparently all, all of these crazy traits. Somewhat what I was asking for, but not quite there to be an albino monster. Hey, at least nature's meeting you halfway on this one. Uh, but do you mind if I take a, another quick look at an email we got about the London Underground mosquito episode? If Carney will allow it, yes. Looks like Carney is given the green light. So this one comes from our listener, David. Hi, guys. I've recently started into your podcast and have been enjoying your addition to my podcast library. I particularly liked a recent episode, Far Below, The London Underground Mosquito, and had a comment and a super cool and relevant link to share. First, the comment. From a biologist's perspective, one pretty well-versed in both evolution and entomology, it was kind of funny to hear you initially ask the question, what if a species becomes trapped in the underworld, can it become a different species altogether? To which the answer is not just yes, it's possible, but assuming the species actually survives and doesn't just die out, the answer becomes necessarily yes. Mutation and natural selection virtually guarantee that a persisting, segregated population will become a different species than its original species given enough generations. Even some of the most successful ancient forms like dragonflies and sharks have evolved and diversified since their ancient fossilized ancestors. And those were very successful and stable forms not trapped in a particular habitat. Evolution is only accelerated by having a drastically different new habitat, and the presence of a tantalizing new man-made niche begs for something to fill it. Insects are like tiny evolution machines, especially with those rapid re reproductive cycles. It is not surprising that an underground population of subway mosquitoes is diverging into a new species. It just makes sense. Second, given uh, the topic of underworld segregation making weird new species, you have to read this BBC article, if you haven't, about a Romanian cave filled with a bizarre, unique invertebrate ecosystem after being isolated from the surface world for 5.5 million years. Consider it the London Underground on steroids, with ample amounts of time for evolution to occur. Anywho, you might not have finished reading this. I did. But I wanted to pass it along anyways, and there's always the possibility of not being ignored 
Ford. Hey, don't sell yourself short, David. Uh, this was a good email. He ends by saying, stay sciency. David, I really appreciate this email. I went and I read the BBC article on the Movile Cave in Romania, which is fascinating. Have you guys read anything about this? No, no, I don't believe so. Oh, you should check this out. It is so cool. So it's a cave system sealed off from the surface until it was broken into by some Soviet uh, scientists in the 1980s, I think, maybe 1970s. It, it hasn't been open to the surface all that long, and it's toxic in there. It's full of gases, full of carbon dioxide and a, a sulfitic environment. And there are these organisms down there that are these albino uh, translucent scorpions and spiders and uh, leeches and there are these bacterial mats that float on the surface of the water in the cave that uh, are described as being like wet tissue paper. You can sort of pick them up and peel them apart all made of bacteria. This sounds awful. <laughs> this sounds like the worst vacation in the world. This sounds like your home, Christian. <laughs> well, like you would, yeah, I don't. No, I don't, I don't mean your house. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it sounds it sounds fitting to your personality. Come on, <laughs> it's dark. It's got scorpions and spiders in it, and yeah. you can swim in wet tissue paper. Water scorpions. <laughs> yeah, and so it's and it's totally dark down there, and it, it it sounds so cool. You should you should go look this up. It's called the Movile Cave in Romania. Really, really worth a look. But also, I wanted to comment on what David was saying about the the. Uh, our, our surprise, or at least our questioning of the evolution of the, the new species of mosquito in the London Underground, one of the things that's really interesting to me is that you could have a new species evolve when there's not an impenetrable barrier. You know, it's not like an island chain that's separated and nothing's really going back and forth. You can always imagine that mosquitoes should be sort of coming up and going back down into the London underground, right? There are openings, there are doors, there are vents, there are shafts. So I, I sort of wonder why didn't crossbreeding continue to occur enough to, to keep this from really diverging? But um, yeah, I guess there must be a good reason. It's because scorpions can't mate with tissue paper. <laughs> so guys, I'm looking over at Carney. Carney is starting to smoke a little bit. We need to let him cool down. So we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to jump right back into the mail. All right, we have returned. You ready to jump into the mail? Wee. <laughs> so I got a piece here that is about our episode on flesh-bound books. We did a book, uh, an episode called Books of Flesh, Anthropodermic, Bibliopeggy. This is about libraries that claim that they contain books that are bound in human flesh. And so we were looking into like whether or not they actually exist or not and how to scientifically uh, actually categorize these books. And we talked about a specific example in that episode, and Matt wrote in and he said, I really enjoyed the episode about the flesh-bound books. I have been listening for a while now, and I love the show. Have thought about writing a few times, but never had enough to say until now. In this episode, you mentioned Juniata College had a flesh-bound book that was tested and was really sheepskin. We did indeed. My grandma worked in that library years hmm. ago and is still friends with the entire department. So I called her, and I got her to set up a walkthrough of their treasure room. 
They happen to have a lot of amazing books in the treasure room. The person who takes care of the treasure was not there when I went in, so I wasn't able to see the flesh-bound book, but I did get to see the rest of the collection, which includes a Bible printed in 1478. They are a set of the first Bibles printed in America in German. Here are some pictures I took. So he attached a bunch of photos from this, and it's pretty cool. The printing press is from the early 1800s or the late 1700s, and it's a wooden printing press that still works. They tested it a few years Years ago, which they said is very difficult to set up. I will be going back sometime in the future when they find where the flesh bound book is. <laughs> but it's only bound in sheep flesh. But yeah, that's super cool. Thanks for sending that in, Matt. I, I always love when our episodes lead to field trips for people. Oh, yes. Now, speaking of trips, uh, I have one here, and this comes to our listener, uh, Shahid, who is an economist, and he writes in in response to our episode on the Black Stone of Mecca, which is a really fun episode where we talked about the, the, the history of the, the Black Stone, both the historical history, the sort of uh, religious history, as well as what scientists can at least theorize about its cosmic history. Right. Because obviously they can't take it to their labs to test it. Right, and that's not going to happen anytime in the foreseeable future. Uh, so, But in the episode we said, hey, we'd love to hear from uh, any uh, uh, Muslim listeners we have out there who uh, might have uh, you know, their own take on how we handle the topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or if they had you know, seen the stone. And we actually heard from a couple of people, I believe on Twitter, who had seen the stone. Yeah. Or, or had a family member who had gone on, gone on the Hodge. Uh, so uh, this listener writes in and says, Long-time listener here, I just wanted to say that I thoroughly enjoyed listening to y'all's episode on Al-Hajir Al-Hazwad. As a Muslim, it was really great to hear y'all go through the painstaking process of being understanding, and I can only imagine the difficulty that comes with tackling a, a religious topic, especially on a different religion. As always, I appreciate the interesting podcast, especially while at work here, uh, where I deal with the dryness of economics on a daily basis. <laughs> if you guys uh, may need some insight on the topics of Islam or economics, feel free to reach out, and I'd be more than glad to be of assistance. Please take care and have a wonderful day. Well, that was really great to hear, but yeah. I don't think it was too painstaking a process. I don't know. No, I mean, it's uh, it's, it's like any exploration that we, we take into uh, you know another culture or another religion. You know, mm-hmm. certainly, uh, I think we always take a great deal of care so that we're Understanding it as best we can while respecting mm-hmm. what we can't understand, you know, and trying and respect- to be mindful of the limits of our perspective. Yeah, um, and you know, we and I think we always approach these topics with uh, an enthusiasm and a, and, a, and a desire to understand it as much as possible. Uh, so, yeah, I I don't. I'm sure we'll get into some more. We've certainly covered topics that involve economics from time to time, so it's good to have an economist uh, uh, in the Rolodex. But mm-hmm. uh, also, I would love to do another topic in the future on uh, on something related to Islam, and so it'll, it'll be nice to have somebody we can uh, potentially uh, throw a question out to there. Yeah, so thanks for getting in touch, Shahid. I've actually got one here that's somewhat related to that. Uh, this was another kind of feel-good listener mail that we received. So Robert and I did two episodes in one week that were a little touchy, and we felt like we had to be careful about how we presented them. The first one 
was about fertility and ovulation and consumer decision making. We were looking at research that was done by a marketing researcher into how ovulation affects decision making when it comes to buying things and politics and how uh, companies are taking advantage of that by uh, basically using targeting information to try to advertise at women who are ovulating. And the same week, we did our episode on sex bots, where we talked about some controversial stuff around sex robots and specifically how they're used for for therapy for surrogates. We received this email from Julie, and she said, What a pair of episodes this week. I typically respond with heaps of anxiety to discussions of the topics you all covered, i.e. ovulation's effects on behavior and sex bots. As an ovulator, I fear the possibility that people will reduce my own behaviors to my hormone levels. And as someone in a female body, I get really creepy crawly when I see sex bots, fearing that they represent forms of existence to which men wish to reduce my person. I'm sure you get it. Point being, at the top of both episodes this week, I was not sure I'd make it through. Anxiety, headaches commenced. Pulses raced. Breathing in shallowed. And yet, I pressed on through your thought-provoking, even-handed discussions. And afterward, I realized that my persistence was because I trust you all. And thanks to my trust in y'all to present information in a carefully considered, intellectually open and humane fashion, I knew you wouldn't leave me curled up in a blubbering mass of feminist anxiety. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) A further note on pairing the episodes. As a social scientist, I'm used to viewing research findings as information, not evil in themselves, but useful insofar as they're interpreted through a properly critical lens. Cultivate use of that lens in the populace, and we can trust others to interpret and apply research fairly. Now, thanks to the fact that your Sexbot episode followed the ovulation research episode, I'm beginning to wonder if I can abandon my usual pearl-clutching response to Sexbot technology in favor of a similar stance. Technology isn't inherently evil. I must work on trusting its consumers, especially when all those therapeutic uses of it are involved. This is fascinating stuff. Thanks for bringing me around to it. Awesome. Well, yeah, that's, it's always... Well, I mean, it's always great to hear uh, that we handled something with the appropriate uh, uh, of care. Because yeah. uh, certainly that's what we try to do. And uh, yeah, anytime we can we can help somebody look at a topic in a slightly different light. I mean, that's that's gold. I mean, that's kind of the experience of putting together the, the show. Is that we, t- at least in my experience, I'm I'm always going into a topic thinking I more or less have a, an, a handle on it, and then finding some some new perspective uh, yeah. that that changes the, the way I view it. More and more lately, I keep coming back to the idea that maybe our two-word tagline should be, there's more. There yeah. always is. That That's what I find out in almost every time we do an episode. Yeah, you know, in these two topics, I was genuinely pretty nervous about covering them, but I felt like they were necessary to cover. For, we talk about it in the episode as to why. But uh, so it's, I, I do want to share a story like like maybe a week after they published, uh, I, I just happened to be talking to some random people mm-hmm. and they, they were asking, hey, well, what's your show doing this week? And I said, oh, we're talking about sex robots. And they went, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, it's actually not like that. It's, you know, it's it's actually like they're used for therapeutic purposes to help people. And oh, come on, bro. Therapeutic exactly, purposes. Yeah, that was exactly the response. And it was like, it's kind of like. 
like when you look at like Playboy for the letters, am I right? And I was like, no, no, that's not. And then I like, it really hit me. I was like, wow, we really did everything we could to not, <laughs> not be that. I imagine that is what listeners like Julie were fearing, you know, mm-hmm. that there would just be like these kind of like dudes in a, a spa, like slapping each other on the back, talking a about spa? sex spots. Wait yeah. a minute. What's, oh, where's the, the spa the come dude in? Spa. Don't you yeah. go to the dude spa? Don't I don't know what spa. you're talking about. Carney Have I been I. locked out of the dude spa? Is this why I don't understand dude culture? <laughs> Carney and I go all the time yeah, and slap each other on the back. No, but like, you know, it just made me feel like, oh, wow. Like, I, I feel like maybe we really did give that the care that was necessary for it. And then Julie's email came in right after that, and it really made me feel a lot better. All right, well, let's not pat ourselves on the back too much. No, we're total scumbags. <laughs> I do like how Carney has that bit of uh, of actual human flesh on his back for slapping purposes. Though. It's really nice. Yeah. It gets sweaty, especially mm-hmm. in the spa. It makes a nice sound, mm-hmm. like uh, throwing a piece of meat down on a cutting board. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, uh, to shift to another one, we got a couple of emails in response to our episode on the science of guessing. Now, Robert and I talked about the method of Fermi estimation, which is a really cool trick you can use to try to come up with numerical guesses based on very little starting information. And uh, this was a topic I thought was pretty cool, but we also talked about the idea of guessing being a skill, how there are some people who are just better at guessing than others. And at the end of the episode, one of the things I, I talked about was wondering if there is such a thing as as a as sort of athleticism of guessing in the same way that when you are shooting hoops in basketball, you're doing math. You're not consciously doing math, but your body is somehow doing math. You're trying to calculate perfect arc trajectories. And I wondered if some people might be good at guessing even without knowing tricks like Fermi estimation or knowing much information. They're just good at doing some kind of intuitive unconscious math that helps them get to the right answer more often than other people do. And our listener, Jonathan, writes in about that subject. Jonathan says, Joe, you were so close to acknowledging a phenomenon that I once wrote about after your excellent episode on P versus NP. And that was one we did last year, if you want to go check it out. This isn't Jonathan Strickland. No, it's not. It's a different Jonathan. This Jonathan writes in fairly often, or at least we've gotten several emails from him before. What if only our colleagues wrote us letters? We never knew it the whole time. The last person was Julie. That could have been Julie Douglas. Oh, I don't think so. Letters from our colleagues would contain way more complaints about how nasty our desks are. All right, so Jonathan says, uh, This is not currently a fashionable concept, but how about, just as a hypothesis to consider, there exists in higher animals, especially in humans, a mode of cognition that is distinct from intelligence. It may be identical or similar to the method of how a foul shot is executed, as you used in an example, or even something beyond that. At the very least, it could be an instantaneous synthesis of perceptible information that was accumulated largely unconsciously. On the more extreme end, it could be a sensitivity to information in our environment that is more subtle than science in 2017 can detect. This sounds like I'm shading off into magic, but consider phenomenon such as how birds may migrate by sensitivity to Earth's magnetic field. Mm -hmm. It's not inconceivable that humans can detect environmental information that's currently not measurable and synthesize it in a process that feels unconscious since the conscious part of the mind 
isn't privy to its generation. It may feel random, sort of colloquially called using your right brain. Great podcast, as always. And then he also recommends to us uh, a weekly podcast by the BBC called No Such Thing as a Fish. So maybe we'll take a look at that. Sounds good. Uh, but yeah, what do you all think about what Jonathan's suggesting here? I- it sounds plausible to me. I mean, I think that there's like lots of... Uh, aspects of how cognition works that we are barely just scratching the surface of now. Totally. There's a lot about how the mind works that we don't understand. And and I do take very seriously that the idea um, you, you said is something distinct from intelligence, but maybe one way you could put it is that there are many multiple kinds of intelligence and that some forms of intelligence are not conscious. You don't think about thinking through them to reach the conclusions you do, and yet they do reach conclusions that influence your behavior. This is very much related to the episode you and I did on animal intelligence a couple months ago. Oh, yeah, it could yeah. be. Yeah, the multiple different kinds of intelligence and intelligences that may not be understandable to their own owners, intelligences that may not be understandable from the outside. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm into that. I'm more skeptical of the idea that there's environmental information that is influencing our brains that, uh, I, I think you might have put it, that science in 2017 can't measure. I'm totally open to, the, of course, there's a, there's a whole lot we don't know scientifically about the world yet, but I would think if there are some kind of energetic influences that are acting on our brains, they'd be measurable in some way. We might not understand what they are or what they're doing, but I would I would find it hard to believe they would be not detectable in any scientific way because if they're acting on the brain, they're doing something, and by doing something, that should mean they're detectable. Joe, you just don't want to believe. <laughs> You're the Scully. Uh, well, I mean, I take that as a compliment. I do love <laughs> Scully, but um, we need more Scullies. Yeah, I'm the Scully who does want to believe. <laughs> Well, so you're like Scully post season five. Is that is that when it happens? That sounds kind of like after the movie. I think is where she starts like being more uh, open to the idea of the paranormal. I'm the Scully that's in the fall. <laughs> well, that's depressing. <laughs> How about the Scully that's in Hannibal? That's exciting. Yeah, I still haven't made it to that. <laughs> All right, we just have a couple left here. Uh, this next one comes to us from Jim, who uh, Jim is, is pretty OG. He's been writing yeah. uh, for uh, quite a while. Always, All, gives us some always great, great emails. Oh yeah. yeah. Wait, has he been writing since Allison was a co-host? I think he may have. I wow. think I, even before me and Allison, back in the the proto days. Oh, bef- when it was just Carney. It was just Carney, and then Carney uh, brought in two uh, piles of uh, sentient goop, oh. and those were the original hosts. <laughs> yeah. And then that's what the listeners say when they always say it was better with the other hosts. They, it was they better. With the goop, oh, yeah, okay. bring back the sentient goop. Okay, yeah. I guess I I should take it personally. <laughs> All right. Well, this one uh, again comes from Jim. Jim writes in and says, "Hi guys, I listened to your luck guessing podcast this morning. This is the the Fermi estimation podcast we've been talking about. Right. Uh, I know I'm a bit behind. I had a few thoughts. It reminded me of two sayings. First, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Right. And then second, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Uh huh. That first one is kind of like, uh, what is it they say? God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> yeah. As for lucky people, 
is it really luck or just chance? Would you consider someone who could flip a fair coin heads 30 times in a row lucky? What if you gave everyone on the planet a coin and asked them to flip as long as they got all heads? Since there are about 7 billion people on the planet, about 7 or 8 people should do it. We don't know who those 7 to 8 people would be. They won't have any special talent, but they will appear well outside of the norms. This sort of goes back to something we did on, I think, maybe the first episode I ever did of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, which was about the science of coincidence, where we oh, talk yeah. about how many things that appear to be these great coincidences are not, in fact, all that remarkable. For example, if there are lots of trials you're not conscious of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the law of large numbers, something you watch somebody flip heads 30 times in a row, it's like, that's impossible. It's crazy. But if they're the only person who did it this year or something, then, you know, somebody had to do it. Yeah, I've... I run into this a lot with Dungeons and Dragons. You know, it's, it's if, uh, if if someone has an advantage and they roll like two twenties in a row, which mm-hmm. you know is the the critical hit, uh, everyone's just floored. Uh, and then you start thinking, well, there's synchronicity going on here. There's something deeper at play. I've but you've actually, rolled so many times and not done that. You're right. I've actually played games where people start to get paranoid, where they think that their dice is somehow like poorly made or loaded the wrong way <laughs> because it's, it's constantly rolling out a natural one which leads to automatic failure. I think I've seen um, a, a, a meme online where people have like done, done dice shaming oh, in yeah. the same way that you would have a dog hold a <laughs> not hold a sign, but a dog with a sign around its neck that says, you know, I, uh, you know, pooped on the floor or whatnot. Yeah. Well, they would shame the dice. Like I, I rolled a, a one on a, when my my character was trying to to uh, swing on a vine across a never right. pit or something. <laughs> Uh, but also, Jim, later in his email, talked about this thought experiment Robert and I did. Or we tried to do a piece of Fermi estimation, some rough estimation, to come up with the answer to the question, in the United States, how much hair in total gets cut off of people's heads every year? I liked how we had another listener who, I, I don't have their name, but they, they commented that it was clear that neither of us had ever had very long hair uh, <laughs> based on our estimate, estimates uh, regarding yeah, hair mass. Our estimate could have been way off, but I think Jim only comes off with about one order of magnitude difference. So let's, let's hear what Jim has to say. He says, quote, I have another idea about the weight of hair. I would do the <laughs> estimate based upon the following assumptions. One, people tend to keep their hair roughly the same length overall, even if they vary how often they get it cut. Two, hair tends to grow about six inches in one year. And three, we could estimate how much six inches of hair on one head would be. I think a six-inch ponytail would be about right, as in the kind that are donated for the real hair wigs for cancer patients. I don't have any to weigh, but let's assume they are about two ounces. That times 300 million Americans gives me 37 million pounds or almost 19,000 tons. I don't remember your estimate. Using another estimate uh, technique for the same problem tends to reinforce estimates. I don't remember where I read this, but it was about estimating how much water flows through the Mississippi River in a year using two techniques. One, choose a location on the river and uh, estimated the the amount of water uh, through that section based upon the river's width, depth, and speed. The other estimate was based upon the size of the Mississippi River Basin and rainfall. Both estimates were pretty close to each other, and the assumption was that two approximations confirmed each other. This is interesting because this is another thing we talked about in the episode, how multiple different estimates can help average each other out. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that Fermi estimation relies upon is that if you're if you're coming up with rough guesses for numbers to calculate some unknown number, 
even if you're wrong on one number, it might help balance it if you're wrong in the opposite direction for a different number. So maybe you overestimate how much the average amount of hair weighs, but you underestimate how much of it gets cut off in each given haircut or something like that. Uh, so if you, if you have enough of these things competing against each other, they should help sort of average you toward the correct answer. Uh, Jim also points out in his email this interesting problem in game theory known as the sheriff's dilemma, which is essentially a problem where you use a game theory payoff matrix to determine whether or not you should shoot somebody based on little information. Oh. You just pitched this as a story recently. I did. I, I took Jim's idea. I wonder yeah. if it's going to get picked up. I don't know. I, I hope so. I hope they make an article out of it. It reminds cool. me of playing Werewolf, uh, which, of course, involves uh, some of these... Uh these t- these uh, these ideas. Wait, what? Uh, the payoff dil- uh, payoff matrix for shooting somebody? Uh, well, the sheriff's dilemma. Yeah. Because, oh, okay. Um, ch- ch- uh, werewolf or mafia? Of course, the the social game where. Yeah. Oh, I see. Where somebody's a werewolf or some. I don't really like the mafia version. I don't think it really holds up well. And maybe I just prefer there be. Werewolves I did not involved. know the werewolf version. This is what? better. Oh, yeah. better. I've only yeah. ever heard of mafia. Really? I, I used to be a pretty oh, serious mafia player. Oh, that's good. Okay. So Jim came up with 37 million pounds of hair, and we came up with 112 million pounds of hair <laughs> getting cut every year. So our estimate, our estimates are just one order of magnitude apart. That's not too bad. No. Uh, and your guess, uh, of course, Jim's guess might be better than ours. So I, I told Jim, I like your methodology, but I didn't know that figure that hair grows an average of six inches a year. Yeah, I heard that, and I immediately thought, my hair grows way more than that. Yeah, I, I I've never heard this, so I don't know yeah. how accurate it is or or anything. Uh, but I, I think also, Robert, you and I could have gone wrong by seriously overestimating the mass of the average head of hair. I think we guessed about a quarter of a pound, which in retrospect sounds really high. And I'm thinking I fell victim to the availability heuristic. That's where you you know make a bad choice based on some particular example in your mind that's easily retrievable. Mm-hmm. And when I was guessing the average head of human hair, I had in my mind a picture of a man with what looks like five pounds of dreadlock. <laughs> so that was probably edging my average estimate too high. Uh, and looking back, maybe maybe we should say two ounces of hair instead of a quarter pound. I don't know. But anyway, another way we could reinforce, as if this number really mattered all that much, is to average our estimates with Jim. So the, the, the average between Jim's estimate and ours would be somewhere around 70 million pounds of hair getting cut every year. Uh, I also mentioned to Jim that when I got his email, I had just gotten my hair cut the other day, and I forgot to ask my barber <laughs> if if she had any input on this information. Oh, I thought you were going to ask your barber to weigh your hair. <laughs> Without explaining anything. Excuse Wouldn't me. that be great? Uh, do you have a scale? Yeah, I, I need you to weigh my hair. <laughs> oh, man, this is great, because I'm, I'm often in need of... Of, um, of of small talk when I go to get my hair cut. Yeah, and it, can, it can be awkward, huh? Yeah, you I guys mean, are going to the wrong barber because <laughs> that's part of the gig, man. They've got to keep the conversation flowing, well, or not talk at all and not make you that. feel any pressure. They, well, yeah, they need to know when you are not interested in talking. As well. I generally, I generally go into a meditative state during uh, my haircut. Like there's something. Very Did you mean relaxing. a catatonic state? No, no, not catatonic, <laughs> but just very. I get. Very relaxed. It's kind of uh, what it's is kind the, of like a de- uh, sensory deprivation tank. Yeah, it's the it's oh, like of, ASMR. It's it's very much like that. Like very much oh, like yeah. ASMR. Like yeah. I just kind of doze out. I'm probably the worst person to. I mean, I, I'm easily moved into different positions. Um, <laughs> 
but uh, <laughs> but I'm not a great talker because uh, I just zone out completely. Your head's lolling back and forth. Yeah, but uh, I, I, one of the first ASMR videos I ever saw was somebody pretending to cut your hair. I think that's a big microphone. one, isn't it? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, totally works on me, by the way. I know uh, the audience is probably going, what the hell is ASMR? Uh, we've done brain stuff videos about this in the past and then stuff to blow your mind yep, video about an, it in the past. Well, right? There's an older podcast episode about oh, it, Oh, is too, there too? So, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com um, or How Stuff Works. I think they may have a straight-up episode there, yeah, if not videos, yeah. and you can type in. ASMR and see what happens. Yeah, it's totally fascinating. All right, I got one more here, and this is from our recent episode about the demon haunted mind. And this is the episode where Robert and I took a look at a recently published academic paper that found a correlation between people who believe in demons and negative mental illness. So, this comes from, uh, I'm, I'm actually going to uh, leave this name anonymous, but they say, as a psychology professional and having an amateur interest in religion, I am a non-denominational Christian. This episode was super interesting to me. On one hand, I can agree with what the study said. On another, I completely disagree with it. Religion is definitely something slightly different to all people. I've been around demonic possessions, what you could call exorcisms. Spiritual healing is another term, depending on the circle. And enough strange things that science definitely could not explain. That being said, I I have rarely seen or heard for myself much that has happened. Most has been right before or right after I was present, only to be corroborated by multiple witnesses. I have never sought demons and don't need to see demonic presences to know the spiritual world exists. This is important to keep in mind. I believe the Bible gives a decent explanation of this, and I have heard other people explain it in this way. If you go looking for something, you will find it. The Bible says, seek and ye shall find, and that's in Luke 11.9. And then it, he also quotes, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, which is in Matthew 16.4. This verse outlines those that go looking for a sign, specifically as proof. They will find it, but generally in a negative way. The reasoning is a little complicated for email, but the basics look something like this in psychological terms. Demons are not seen as academic. In almost every case, they are evil and are a belief. Therefore, by making the decision to look for them, the negativity infects your mind. It has been well documented what focus on negative issues can do to people. In some cases, this could be so extreme as to produce multiple mental issues. I have my own views, religious and personal, on this, but I won't share them here. This is just a basic idea that seems to be true in my personal and professional life. So, I mean... I. I think what I'm hearing outside of what this person's actual belief system is lines up with the study to me from what like I remember from their correlations that it wasn't actually that like demons were influencing you somehow, but that it was that because you were prone to having a cynical worldview, hmm. you were subsequently attracted to the idea of demons and negative mental health uh, as a maybe totally obvious or too obvious to state thing i mean uh, obviously having demon obsessed ideation could lead to the belief that someone is possessed by demons yeah well one of the things that's interesting about this study is that they also showed that just 
like the belief in demons may correlate with mental health problems, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean necessarily that mental health problems correlate with b- the belief in demons. Does right. that make sense? Uh, though, I mean, I wouldn't want to sell short the influence of this person's religious beliefs. Reading this email, yeah. I strongly get the sense that this person believes demons are real. Yeah, they said at the top, they said amateur interest in religion, but it certainly sounded a lot more in-depth than what I would think of well, I'm as also- amateur. I'm also reminded of uh, the episodes that we did about uh, Incubi and Succubi, uh, and 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 I, and I think we've touched on on uh, witchcraft persecution uh, in other episodes as well. But uh, there there are a few theories. In fact, one from the the author uh, Walter Stevens, who wrote this book Demon Lovers that we refer to, mm-hmm. and uh, in, he makes an argument that a lot of what was going on with the persecution of witches is this this desire in a time of of a faltering faith. Uh, this desire for there to be a proof of the supernatural. Yeah. That if, in the, like, carnal proof, like physical proof, like this is where the supernatural realm touches us and proves its reality. And if demons are real, then God is real as well. Yeah. So demons are, it wasn't just strongly religious people trying to act out their religious fervor, but it was people who were afraid that God might not exist and thinking that if demons, if you can show demonic possession, you can know that God is real. Mm. And, yeah. So, yeah, that's really interesting. One thing I would pick up on this email is uh, trying to reason about the the presence of demon possession or the reality of demon possession from the idea of uh, seeing things that science definitely could not explain. I'm always like, I don't. How do you know? You hear people say that about things that can't be publicly investigated, but whenever it's something that can be publicly investigated, suddenly it gets way less uh, deterministic about whether science can't explain it. I I think future pronouncements that this science will never be able to explain this thing I saw, I I don't think there's a good basis for saying that. Well, I do want to point out, too, that outside of this letter, we received a lot Mm -hmm. of listener mail about this particular episode, and a lot of you shared your personal experiences with us. And, you know, unfortunately, because of how much time we have for these listener mail episodes, we we couldn't read them all. This one was interesting to me primarily because it was from a psychology professional. Yeah. Um, But we did hear from, I would say, at least 10, if not more, people about their personal experiences both with the belief in demons and with mental illness and how the two connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, hmm, I don't know necessarily from like, I, I see exactly what you're saying. I can see how from like a subjective standpoint, it feels like science couldn't explain something that mm-hmm. you've seen. But like, you could say the same thing. Of, and, and that's not to take away from the power of it in your personal experience or in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but then, like, you could have said the same thing about, I don't know, astronomy a thousand years ago, yeah. right? So um, I, I'm not quite so sure. But I, I also, like, this person seems to have, like, an interest in the empirical, but also in the spiritual mm-hmm. that, like, are sort of rubbing up against one another. Yeah. That's probably why this episode uh, clicked for them. And I do want to mention, we've mentioned this before, but anytime we discuss supernatural experience, uh, we never, we're never doubting the the experience, the and and the the feelings that are associated with it, the be it, you know trauma or you know a serious a, a sensation of enlightenment, like that that is all valid. It's it's what is causing the experience. Yeah. Uh, and and I feel like 
most of the time, if not all of the time, you can point to some very valid explanations that are that are very much in, in keeping with our understanding of the natural world and the, in the human mind. Mm-hmm. But I would also say that even going beyond that, not being aware of a current valid explanation rooted in natural science also is not uh, proof that you've experienced a demon or a ghost. Right, right. I did want to say something else that this this email was interesting to me in multiple ways. So I, I really appreciate the person who wrote it writing in. Uh, but the idea about warnings against investigation of the demonic, like that seems a, a very interesting and intellectually uh, fertile soil as well. Like the idea of uh, interpreting certain Bible verses to say that if you go after looking for evidence of the demonic, if you want to try to investigate it in this academic way, you are asking for trouble. <laughs> yeah, um, that that's something that we came across in the exorcism adorcism episode as well. That depending on like what particular religious beliefs you have, there are that that's in line with some of them. That it's like yeah. you just shouldn't uh, think about this yeah. stuff. Don't look behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, that's also, you could look, I'm not saying that the person writing the, this email uh, has this motive in mind, but you could also say similar things to just discourage investigation sure. of a phenomenon that would sur- or ultimately make it look mundane. Yeah, well, and that's one of the interesting things, too, about that study, was that it was one in a long line of studies that had shown correlations between religious beliefs and mental health. And there are positive ones, too, as we mentioned in the episode, like belief in a loving God or belief in prayer. Things like that lead to positive mental health. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, it's just interesting kind of like looking at how they all weigh together, like which things do you choose to think about and which things do you not? And I don't know if you decide that based upon on what the the canonical writings of your religion are or or something else i'll just say this do not look in into the world of demons do not investigate the world of <laughs> demons unless you want to discover so many wonderful films pieces of literature <laughs> uh compositions of music so many wonderful pieces of art um it's all of robert's best D campaigns <laughs> yeah D- dungeons and dragons has so many devils and demons uh yeah, there's there's so much wonderful stuff out there. I can't imagine uh, my life uh, if I had not uh, decided to to look into them a little. And bit. as we talked about in the episode, when you were a little kid, you and I had the same thing where we'd be like Sunday school, and you would say, "Hey, I want to know more about this Revelations. It says like all these demons and legions are going to come show up, and, and the people would be like, uh-huh. hey, don't don't worry about that. Let's let's get more to the caring part.'" <laughs> And that's, I think that's kind of valid advice as well. There's always in Sunday school a little bit of steering you to the parts of the Bible they want you to focus on. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, on that note, let's go ahead and close it up. Uh, we'll leave everyone out there to either pursue the demons or the caring, whichever one you want to do. Hopefully, you'll make room for both in your life. Um, as usual, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all of the blog posts, podcasts, videos, and links out to our various social media accounts. That's right. And if you want to write us the old-fashioned way, you can get us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
Thank you.